problem is with some of these tendering commission models is that they're just a race to the bottom. It all becomes about price, the price being the dominant factor. This is particularly true in the area of domiciliary care, for example. And that's not necessarily going to give the best result. Welcome to the podcast. In this series of episodes, I've been exploring homelessness and mental health, and I've been looking at the issue from the point of view of people in very different areas of the same system and in different areas of policy. And I've been interested how people with very different expertise and different specialisms can all form parts of the same system. And this is, of course, partly reflective of the complexity of homelessness as an issue. In the healthcare system, I spoke to Alex Fitzgerald Barron, a GP at St Clement's Winchester. With regards to food banks, I spoke to Paula Ferguson. For a local government and housing perspective, I spoke to both Patrick Davies and Caroline Horrell. And with regards to an actual homelessness shelter, I spoke to Trevor Edwards from Emmaus Winchester. This episode, I'm speaking to Clive Cook. He's the chief executive of St John's Winchester, which is a charity that does fantastic work, principally for older people. Uh, As a charity, they run almshouses, dementia care homes. And where there's some overlap with homelessness, more generally, we discuss the role of voluntary organisations in providing care, in initiatives like social prescribing, in creating more inclusive communities, and in building resilience uh, in people, particularly on the preventative side of care. So this was a fascinating episode. I want to thank Clive again for his time, and I really hope you enjoy it. Firstly, how challenging have, you, have the last few months been, and how have you overcome these challenges? Um, it's been extremely challenging since the outbreak of the virus. And I'd say how we've coped really is to sort of up our game in terms of teamwork. So we've got a fairly flat management structure here, but it's become even flatter in the sense that um, we have a much sort of higher and deeper level of communication than we, which is ironic, I suppose, uh, than we did pre pre-lockdown, when we were actually physically together in an office, actually the interactions between the the managers and those um, heading our services has actually um, increased. Um, uh, The interactions with our board, and we're accountable to our board, have also um, increased as well. Long, long. 
also taken time to look at the future as well and how this crisis impacts our future. And we've done that both in terms of analysing risks and potential outcomes, but also uh, we're beginning the uh, process of looking at opportunities that this crisis may offer to us to further our purpose and the achievement of our strategic goals. Uh, you mentioned innovation there. Would you say that's an advantage of having uh, care provided by VCSEs as opposed to um, local councils and local authorities? Partly to do with scale. So um, if you're of the sort of scale that we are and providing care to a relatively small number of people um, and operating under a structure which really defines purpose and allows us some flexibility, it, it, it is that facilitates a good a good response. Um, having said that, you know I think um, the local authority here is doing a good job at um, maintaining and its services and continue to deliver those in key areas in very difficult circumstances. But there's no doubt that our scale allows to be involved, and there's no doubt that. Um, structure as well in the voluntary sector depends you know, which part of the voluntary sector you organise because a lot of the voluntary sector is now funded um, under government contracts and procurement and commissioning and you know we're fortunate in that that's not the source of our funding so we, we, we have a good deal of um, flexibility and that allows us to um, adapt Now, in the last few years, in part because of legislation like the Care Act 2014 and also just because of other changes, there's been more of a focus on uh, things like well-being and on social prescribing. So I wondered if you could just talk a bit about how the this recent legislation has changed your role as a care provider. Yeah, there's been um, you know, significant changes um, in the last in the last few years. I mean, as far as, far as the impact of the sort of Care Act on our charity is concerned, it isn't actually huge for various reasons, and some of those are partly to do with scale. But as time goes on, um, and this crisis may sort of give a further sort of fillip to this process, um, you know, it's about it's about the individual having greater autonomy. Um, having a budget and being able to use that budget in the way that they want to use the budget and um, I think that's a trend that will um, continue going forward. There's, there's huge you know, uh, funding challenges across the board and that's the key thing and the existence of the, the Care Act and the funding that's been attached to that hasn't really solved those those, fun, those funding issues. So um, there needs to be a sort of realignment in um, social care. There needs to be um, a greater integration between healthcare and social care. Um, I think there's the structure of. I am from a different background, to, not from a healthcare background, but the. Uh, 
the way it's structured astonishes me actually because it's just not structured in a way I think to deliver the best outcomes there's there's duplication of efforts um, the duplication of regulation um, there's this sort of business model approach to the delivery of primary health care which for me doesn't work um, so I think the system needs fundamental overhaul this care act and, and, and the philosophy behind it is a good uh, approach and a good start but without um, adequate funding for it and, and a decision around who pays for it um, you know it, it's its impact is going to be more limited than it than it than it should be. And what sort of funding changes would you want to see in, in order for the healthcare system to function more effectively? Mm. I think I think you know social care needs to be put put on a par with with healthcare in many ways. And you've got a system, particularly in relation to care homes, where um, the only organisation building care homes are basically those who have a self-funder model and you know, are, are in the sector and the market in order to make a profit. Uh, if, you, if you don't have the profit motive um, and you don't have very significant scale, then actually you can't really survive um, in the voluntary sector as a provider of um, residential care. It just it, the economics of it just simply do not stack up. So the the answer to it, I think, in the long term, is um, to keep people out of care homes for as long as possible, and either being independent um, in their own existing homes, or to move into communities which uh, are there to support older people. Um, and really I'm referring to extra care, which has been uh, a concept and a policy strategy that's been pursued quite effectively by, by Hampshire County Council here. Uh, because, you know, the, re the research shows, because you were talking about well-being, the research, the research does demonstrate that actually there are benefits of living in living in a community, and a lot of older people actually, you know, don't want to move out of their own home. And I think there needs to be some advocacy um, of the benefits of moving back into a a community. And um, the the long term solution to this is is lies in planning, it lies in funding to build more communities and or support people to live at home and connect them with others in different ways. Social prescribing, you know, certainly certainly being one of them, so that the care the care sector is confined to a situation where you know, somebody can't uh, effectively continue in a community or in their own home and needs nursing care, uh, palliative care, end of end of end of life care because however well you run a care home it's incredibly difficult not for it to become in 
marginalised in, in some ways and for people to lose a degree of their autonomy. In some ways that's, that's, the, that's the price to be paid. But what policy needs to do is keep people in communities, keep people in their own homes for as, as long as possible. Um, but at the moment, there's only the pri- there's only really the private sector, in some ways, op- operating within it um, effectively, um, which depends upon fri- private funding, and you know people simply cannot afford um, that. Who well, they, they just don't have the means. I previously interviewed Paula Ferguson and Patrick Davies, and an issue that both of them raised was whether the increased prominence of these voluntary organisations was reflective of them sort of substituting for public sector, uh, essentially hollowed out after some quite significant cuts to local authority budgets. And we've seen obviously much more, you know, as you mentioned, much more volunteering uh, during this lockdown, which in some ways is very encouraging. But what what are your thoughts on that? The problem with the voluntary sector is that it's very fragmented and you get organisations of different scale. Um, and we're talking here about the use of taxpayers' money, but I, I, I'm a sort of strong believer, uh, and this has had to happen because of austerity in a way, that the, ro- the role of the, the local authority, uh, in some instances anyway, doesn't need to be that of the sort of primary provider of the service. That they can be a facilitator of service, whether it's through funding, whether it's through training, whether it's through providing resources uh, to voluntary organisations, to social enterprises, etc., etc. So, I think going forward, it, it, you know, funding is always a big question, and it, it always will be. I, I think we've got to look at different ways of organising the delivery of services. And the problem is with some of these sort of tendering commission models is that they're just a race to the bottom. You know, it all becomes about price, the price being the dominant factor. This is particularly true in the area of domiciliary care, for example. And that's not necessarily going to give the best results. So the, the difficulty you have is you're spending taxpayers' money and the authorities have got to be accountable for that. But some of, some of the tendering and commissioning processes that they that they necessarily deploy, it's not, it's, not, it's not their fault, it's just the way it is, don't necessarily sort of guarantee the best results. So there needs to be a greater level of flexibility so it's not it's not just about money for sure there's got to be adequate funding and that's going to be very challenging um, in the in the wake of this crisis because the tax base is going to diminish uh, and we're going to be repaying debt um, but uh, there the needs to be a focus on how we do things as, as well as um, how we how we fund them now you've worked all over the world in various spheres. Is there any, is there anything that we can learn from other countries and how we design more effective systems for vulnerable people? Yeah, I think I think I think there probably are. I mean, uh, you yeah, know, homelessness is a vastly sort of complex thing, and you know, providing housing is a, is only one uh, is only a sort of partial solution to the to the to the problem because homelessness has sort of you know, social causes, 
problem around this country is the availability of social housing. Um, and that's partly to do with funding, it's partly to do with the cost of um, housing. Uh, and there are, I think, some lessons from other, other, other countries about um, the building of social housing, because I think one of the problems in, in this country is that our, our sort of planning system is, is geared up is geared to not doing things as opposed to doing things. So the government sort of continuously announces policies to boost the number of homes built. Um, it's creating funding through Homes England for further homes to be built. But actually the whole, the entire system needs overhaul. So it becomes easier to build things. And that is, does involve cost uh, because uh, there needs to be a proper balance of um, rights here. So, you know, at the moment, um, planning laws are very much geared to almost, in my view, the status quo. Um, and, you know, that's a lot of people are very conservative in their approach. Um, they, don't, they don't want developments on their doorstep, etc., etc. So, but to me, there needs to be a sort of societal change and an acceptance that things will be built um, and the planning system needs to be streamlined and, um, you know, public or social housing given a priority and that, you know, has been in a case in a few countries around, around the world where there's also less stigma attached to social housing as well. So, for me, it, yeah, it's about funding, it's about providing homes, but it's also about an overhaul of the system as well and a, ch and a real change of, of, of priorities. Um, and then it's about, I think, uh, the, the, the strategies rightly moved to prevention, you know, quite a while ago, and I think that was a really, really good thing. But there just needs to be a societal acceptance that the problem of homelessness is very, very complex. And you need to provide different types of support and resources to different people in order to get them back into work, increase their resilience, um, as well as you know providing a roof um, over the over the heads. And actually, I, I think in Winchester, the council has uh, done a good job of of the second piece of that. That, that I think. You know, despite their resources being reduced, they've they've responded very, very. They've responded well. Uh, where they're not doing so well, um, and this they have in common with many other councils, is in the building of affordable homes. Um, but I think I think honestly, this this system is is against them, and it needs overhaul from the, from the centre. Mm. One of the examples that I sort of wanted to focus on was about the Finnish um, housing first model. And I think that really links in with what you're what with what you've been saying. Um, I think Finland is the only country in Western Europe over the last ten years where homelessness has actually fallen. I think in this country it's risen by like 170 percent or something ridiculous. Um, I, I don't know if this question is too specific, but what are your thoughts on um, the housing first model as opposed to uh, conventional models of tackling homelessness? I think well I think there needs to be you know 
that is I agree with that in principle. There need there needs to be a pathway. Um, the problem is that you need to sort of get people off the streets, and so um, you know, maybe that your solution in any given circumstance does have to involve some kind of temporary accommodation. But um, yeah, I would agree that you need to do everything, if possible, in twin in twin track. Um, but most of us, most of all, it's important to get a roof over over some somebody's head and make that as permanent as possible, as soon as possible, whilst also tackling tackling the sort of underlying cause and bringing in all these other support support services. So how do you think we could redesign the benefit system more broadly in terms of uh, housing and, and things like universal credit? Um, you know, I, th- I think it's about providing the type of support that's, that's needed at the, particular, at the particular time. I think the biggest, biggest thing is that, um, you know, there's been the local um, housing allowance cap um, and that really hasn't moved a great deal across the country for so long, and it's just inadequate. And um, you know, if there's one single thing that needs to be done, that needs to be looked at and overhauled, and perhaps you know, just calculated on a on a diff on a different on a different basis. Uh, it seems to me unduly for- formulaic and. Um, it's clear that uh, more funding needs to be made available to provide housing. It's just, it's just, it's just not adequate um, in certain areas of the country. I just want to apologise for the noises of all the cows in the background. Maybe we've got a field next to our house. <laughs> want to thank Clive again for his time. It was a really interesting interview and it's one uh, which of which I want to explore some of the issues that Clive raised uh, in further detail in future episodes. So I want to thank him again for his time. Now one of the interesting points that he raised was about tendering services and he seemed to imply the following that they're flawed because they assume quote a business model where it's about price and where price is uh, the dominant factor. And he said this creates uh, a race to the bottom in terms of standards, which I think is a fascinating criticism of the tendering system. Uh, That is whereby local authorities provide funding to different initiatives in the voluntary sector for the provision of services. And certainly the conventional logic of the system is one of competition, of different organisations competing for funding which would theoretically encourage innovation and perhaps even a more dynamic approach. But to hear him criticise what what he called this business model was fascinating, and I definitely want to explore this further in future episodes. It does, though, go beyond that, uh, because on the other hand, Clive suggested that organisations which are funded uh, by a mixture of donations and private funding, in other words, in other words, which don't have local authority funding, 
are also limited and that they tend to only facilitate a fragmented approach where you might have duplication. Uh, Organisations of different scale doing essentially the same thing, in addition to the limitation that in different parts of the voluntary system, people might have to pay to use these uh, services, which obviously limits how useful they can actually be. Another point that Clive mentioned towards the end of the podcast was about housing, and his view was quite multifaceted in, in, this, in this respect. He seemed to argue that we need to build more social housing, to change our attitudes to social housing more generally, and he mentioned uh, the planning system and how uh, we perhaps need to streamline it. And actually no other interviewee has yet mentioned the planning system, and it's something which is often talked about as a way to solve the housing crisis. And when we do hear about it, it's sometimes used to argue that local authorities are standing in the way of increasing the supply of housing through being overly restrictive. And I think there is, a, there is some truth in that, that perhaps the, how the planning system is overly restrictive. But actually for councils, there's a lot of pressure in terms of their budgets to approve new developments in more ways than one. First, we've seen some quite significant cuts to local authority budgets, and building new homes provides funds for local authorities in the form of the new homes bonus scheme, and also for the money that the council directly receives off of council off of selling uh, unused land. Second, each local authority has a target set by the central government for building new homes, and if that isn't met then local councils and local authorities face penalties. I I should clarify here that these penalties are not financial, but rather about control. The power is taken away from local authorities to prevent new developments for whatever reason. And actually Martin Tett, a a spokesman for the local government association, said this, that these penalties, quote, risked housing becoming a free-for-all, which will bypass the needs of local communities and could damage public trust in the planning system. Another thing Clive mentioned was the local housing allowance and how this is in many ways inadequate. Now, during the crisis, the government actually extended the local housing allowance to cover the the lowest 30% of rents in each area. And, And actually, this has been a key Uh, focus of organisations like the Joseph Roundtree Foundation uh, have been looking at housing as one of the most important policy issues that affects homelessness. And I do think that Clive is absolutely right to argue that we need some reform to the local housing allowance. And I would refer in this regard to some research by Professor Danny Dawling at Oxford, uh, whose research showed that the number of households accepted by local authorities as homeless because of losing a private sector tenancy more than tripled between 2010 and 2016 from about 6,000 households to nearly 19,000. In other words, this huge increase in rents in recent years, the fact that people are increasingly struggling to afford what is by the way a human right should trouble us all. And reforming the local housing allowance to reflect this, reforming the benefit system more widely, is absolutely something that we should be looking at. So I want to thank Clive again for his time. Please do share this episode on social media 
all over the internet. And thanks again for listening.